Jazz. Bastard. Welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast 143. I'm Pat. Mike, unfortunately, cannot be with us, but I've given the ransom note to the police, so I feel like my work is done, and uh, when they figure out where he's at, we'll get him back. We do have a special guest tonight, though. Glenn Kreitzer. I'm ho- I hope I'm saying that right, Glenn. Is it Kreitzer? It is Kreitzer, yes. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm able to mispronounce almost any word in English or other language, so <laughs> even the easy ones sometimes I screw up. If it's okay with you, Glenn, I thought we'd begin by talking about your recently released CD and the project there and how people can find it and how they can hear you and your band, and then maybe talk a little bit about your background and then maybe go into some more detail about you know how the project came together, some of the hurdles you faced, and where the material for the project came from, that sort of thing. And then you very kindly provided some tracks for us to look at that are kind of some of your inspirations, and I think some, some songs that you've got some things to say about from the era of music that you've kind of been inspired by. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. Cool. So uh, if you could begin, tell us a little bit about this project, this double CD that's coming out or came out, Ain't It Grand? Where can people find it? Tell us a little bit about what's on it. Sure. Well, uh, it is uh, a double CD, two discs, 30 tracks total, and it is about half originals and half classics. And so what folks should know is my bands play music from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So our approach to that is not just as a, a band recreating, but we're also not trying to modernize. So it's it's kind of a unique niche in that like we'll we'll play charts from Artie Shaw or Count Basie, but Artie Shaw would have played a Count Basie chart that he liked at that time as well. So our goal isn't to, you know, copy every solo off of a record or anything like that, but to sort of be our own band from 1940 and find our own sound with within the parameters of that era, rather than trying to update it or trying to strictly recreate. So yeah, so the album is is a mix of classics and, and originals that I've written. Folks can get it on, uh, I think it's on iTunes already now, and it's on CD Baby is probably the best place to get it, because you can get physical or digital there. Uh, you can also get it uh, the digital on Bandcamp, which is another spot I like to put music up. Great. And I'm too old to be a hipster, but I will ask, is, is this available on vinyl, or is that something you've considered? You know, I've considered it, but so I have feelings about, about recording vinyl, which is that, like, I think a lot of the modern vinyl that comes out is sort of a gimmick, because if it's recorded digitally, then essentially when you put the digital recording onto vinyl you're getting the worst of both worlds instead of the best of either. You're still getting a digital recording, but then you're also getting record noise. So I think the the actual appeal to vinyl is if it's recorded straight to vinyl, then you're actually getting an analog recording. If you're getting digital just dumped onto a record, I don't see any sonic value in that uh, for people who are who are audiophiles. So, you know, at some point, if I have the budget to, to, to record straight to vinyl, which is considerably more expensive... I'd love to do that sometime, but uh, it just doesn't, you know, I don't think it makes sense to, to dump digital onto vinyl. Have you considered a set of 78s? Oh, totally. I mean, but again, you got to you gotta record <laughs> it. 
got to record it in the uh, in the old school way in order to do that, and you know, no digital. Right into an acoustic horn, sure. I'm assuming this that sounds like this album was recorded digitally. It did not go to like analog tape. Right. Yeah. We. I mean, we just you know we did it in Pro Tools. So people, I, I'm this old school guy, right? So people think, well, everything he does, it must. Just, I just look at the aesthetic, and I go. Okay, what what new technology serves that aesthetic, and what new technology detracts from the aesthetic, and that's really important in terms of approach. Because people say, well, if if in 1938 they would have had monitors and could have put a mic on every instrument, they would have done it. And to, my response to that is, well, maybe they would have. I mean, certainly they had more mics in the studio available than they often used. But I think the question then becomes, but would they have still continued to make the same music? I mean, if you took synthesizers and dumped them in 1938 and tried to tell me, oh, yeah, they would have just made the same music, but with synthesizers, I would I would say you're insane. <laughs> and I think uh, monitors and, and microphone setups and all of those things affect the way that people work. So I think you have to you have to look at what new technology can be used to s- serve that older aesthetic and what gets in the way of it. Oh, great. We will be, just so you know, and the listeners are probably, if they're familiar with the podcast, already aware of this, I'm going to be inserting musical cues and examples. And if there's something in particular you'd like me to do to say, Pat, could you play a passage from X? And I'll, I'll put it in. Otherwise, I just kind of listen to the flow of the conversation and go back and post and put in clips. But one thing I noticed when I was listening to a playlist of the songs that you'd kind of picked out for us to discuss later, and then your two discs of ain't it grand was that sonically as i trance you know move from the earlier recordings to your recording it was not a sharp shock it it, it sounded much the same on you know mediocre little bluetooth speakers i'm I'm using here in sweden so I, i think my understanding is that you made some effort and it sounds like from your discussion here of multiple miking to kind of record in the style of those bands in the 30s and 40s rather than in a modern with a modern studio gloss or sound project that comes to mind is like that. I don't know if you've ever listened to the music of Roxy Music or Brian Ferry, but he's got a deep back catalog. And a few years ago, he actually released a series of instrumental versions done in the 1930 style of some of his old tunes. So sure, yeah, and, and he did it in that kind of in that sonic universe. So is it, is it, am I correct? Is that the way you went about making the recording? And maybe just talk a little bit about how that was accomplished and how that affected your musicians and, and your kind of experience of, of putting the album to, uh, not to wax, but, but to digital. Yeah. How that work? Well, you know, I mean, this is, it's a big part of my philosophy to work in this way that I, I feel like, I, you know, so, someday for me, I think a, a book is, is, is out there on the way that technology affected performance practice. You know, I've, I've read a lot of really good books on the history of, of technology uh, and, 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 you know, how it affected culture. For example, there's a, a Capturing Sound is a really good book on that. But... I haven't seen a book like that yet with, that really just traces how technology affects performance practice in jazz. And I, I think that's so important. 
So I don't look at, you know, when we play live, we don't use monitors. We use a minimal mic setup just, just as they would have then. And the way I look at it is not like, well, I'm doing this to be old school. I look at it as this is a certain sound. And it's not just my job to play notes and then whatever goes into your ear is what goes into your ear. It's my job as the band leader to determine what I want to go into your ear. And part of that is the way that the music sounds. I, I think too many people leave that sonic aspect up to like a sound guy and they go, well, he, he knows better than I do. Well, well, how could anybody? I mean, I spend all of my time every day from morning to night on doing vintage jazz. I mean, that's, that's what I do, you know, for, for a living and for my life. So how could somebody who has heard a few old records, maybe has a dabbling interest in it, but works in all kinds of other genres, possibly know what that sound is, is supposed to be like better than somebody who does it? So I really take responsibility for what's going into your ear. And I think that the, the blend and the balances that you get from using individual mics are not just indicative of the time, but I think they're part of the music. I think that's it's really important. So in doing this album, it wasn't unique for us because this is, you know, it's how we work all the time. When we play live, we'll do, uh, you know, maybe four or five mics, uh, you know, a couple area mics on the band and a soloist mic and a vocal mic and maybe a piano mic. So the guys in the band are all very much used to that way of working and balancing uh, naturally and knowing when the soloist is on mic and knowing when the soloist is not on mic and keeping their backgrounds out of the way and and rhythm section playing appropriately for all of that. So... I guess it wasn't it wasn't new or revolutionary for us just because it's sort of our status quo. Okay, so I guess I, I, we could go a couple directions. And one would be that, that another thing you mentioned here was that you believe that the musicians themselves recording under these conditions maybe perform differently or just kind of bring a different ear or, or heart to the proceedings as opposed to, say, recording in, I assume, isolation booths in a you know heavily mic situation where everybody's kind of on, on their own and, and, and separate separated for maximum kind of control of every track. Right. Uh, and I presume, too, in a sense, I mean, this is a fairly uh, numerous, there's a lot of numbers here, but you're, you're kind of sticking to what we call a 78th 78 length performance, right? The, most of these songs are three or four minutes. Yeah. There isn't a tune here that goes 15 minutes. There's no like Coltrane cover or something where people right. just wail and wail. So have, have your musicians talked to you about that or, or do you get sense that these, because I, I guess I'm assuming, and that's a, another question I've got for you is do these musicians always play in this style or do they sometimes play gigs, a wedding gig or a modern jazz gig where some of the techniques they'd be using on this record they would not bring to the table? or So I guess it's a couple different questions, but do, do you hear from the musicians that this does kind of affect their performance? And also just what's your sense of, do they feel like they, they're performing in a sense a role in this band, or how does that work? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, some of the guys in the band pretty much just do vintage jazz. Okay, okay, Some sure. of the guys do other, other stuff as well. When you're, you know, it's a different approach. So when you are blowing two or three choruses in a jam session type vibe, right? Uh, or, or, you know, a more modern jazz type vibe is essentially a jam session type vibes. People take a chorus after chorus after chorus. There is a certain thing you're trying to achieve there. You're building a structure with your solo. You're, you're, t you're taking it in a certain direction. You're, you know, that's what it's about, right? When you are working in a format like this, which is essentially a dance format, and and I think it's important to remember that you know we say well song songs were three minutes because of seventy eight. 
well, sort of, but also songs were about three minutes because that's about the comfortable length for people to dance. I, I actually started out as a swing dancer, and that's how I got into playing jazz. I was a classical musician before that, and there was just sort of nobody really making the music that we wanted to dance to, and I said, well, I, I could do that. But if you get into dancing, you know the feeling of trying to dance to a five or six minute song, especially if it's up tempo. But even if it's not, there's sort of this arc that, that has to, that flows for a dance and it's, it lasts about three, three and a half minutes, anything longer than that. And it just sort of feels like it's rambling on. So when you're approaching that musically, it's a, it's just a different, it's like a, a switch flips and you're doing a different thing. It's not about creating this solo that you're creating this fantasy that you're, um, or, or, you know, a um, sort of rhapsodic thing where you're taking the audience somewhere instead the creativity becomes about how you are making especially working within this you know tight arrangements how you are making the arrangement work you know that we're going to go from point a to point b in this arrangement and how is your solo going to express something but also do the job of taking the band from point a to point b so you have this role in both doing something creative on your horn, but also in making this arrangement work as a composition through your solo. Right. Yeah. So it's it's a more and you know we tend to think of big band music that way, where the soloist is more of a has a more of an instrumental role. I guess you know it, it's it's not a focus on a long passage of self-expression that's kind of bracketed off from the surrounding mm-hmm. music. It's more integrated. It's it's shorter. It's pithier. Yeah. And so it sounds like that's very much a goal. It, so really, I guess the main sense I've got is when I listen to the sound and it, it reminds me, it's a very close and, and, and sonic world of, uh, you know, a 30s, uh, 78 side. Uh, mainly, you mentioned that it's kind of a minimal miking setup. Are there any yeah. other techniques you use? I mean, are people playing, I guess, you know, really, I guess the big band instruments have not changed all that much in the last 50 or 60 years. I mean, it's not quite like early music performances on catgut violins or something but you know are there any other uh, things you do to kind of give it that patina or that sound sure well I, well i actually i think big band instruments have changed a lot in the last okay okay know, 70 years certainly the the horns are are different and a lot of my guys play older horns mm-hmm. particularly the brass a modern trumpet is a much uh oh, the new ones are lighter and the old ones are heavy i think is how it works uh and it's just like they're heavier instruments it's just it's it's You'd be better off to talk to to one of my trumpet players, and they could tell you all the details about that better than I can describe it. But certainly the older horns, I think particularly in the brass, make a difference. And, and a lot of my guys play older horns or modern horns that, that kind of are, are built in that older style. Definitely in the rhythm section, it's a huge deal. Uh, you know, a bass player with steel strings and an amp is is a very different vibe than a bass player with gut strings and and no amp. You know, pianos are, are essentially the same. But certainly, you know, the guitar that I play is a 1937 Gibson L7. They just don't make guitars that sound like that anymore. I mean, it just, it just, it doesn't exist. And uh, the drum set, of course, is all vintage drum set because, you know, a modern kick drum is, is often 18 or 20 inches around and it just doesn't, they're sometimes smaller and it's, they have the little tiny kicks. And it's just the wrong pitch as, as, as the function of the bass drum became more about playing bombs and hits than it was about being the thing that really kept the time for the band. The, the pitch of those things got higher as they got smaller in order for them to cut more. So when you're looking at building this sort of foundational element with your drums, you got to have that big bass drum to get the sound. you got to have that deep snare as opposed to the little skinny snare. you got to have thin hi-hat cymbals because you're not going to get that swishy 
light 30s sound with a modern hi-hat. They're just, they're, they're too thick. And the only way to get it is to hit them really, really, really hard. But then it's totally changes the attack and everything. So yeah, so I think actually the instruments make a big difference. And then, yeah, you know, very minimal mic setup. And of course, just the, the way that these, the guys in the band all play. I mean, they all play in that older style, you know, uh, they all improvise in that older style. And so they each bring their personality to the table through that that style which is kind of cool right yeah i mean it certainly picked out some soprano work that reminded me of johnny hodges i'm a huge uh, ellington fan and you know other, other instrumentalists who you know and i'm not saying just he wasn't like playing his licks but you know in that kind of style in a way that you wouldn't hear typically someone in john schofield's band playing that way right it's right. a different different yeah. approach Oh, well, that's cool. So I guess talk a little bit about, well, I, we could go a couple directions. Maybe before we, we dive even deeper into the record project itself, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about your background and, you know, how you came to, you, you gave me a little kind of preview before we started officially, but, you know, just kind of how you came to become a band leader, which is always, uh, my understanding, a very <laughs> tough pursuit, right? To, to run a big band is a lot of work. You have a lot of people to keep track of and a lot of organizational stuff to do and, and some Sometimes psychological stuff. It kind of depends on the makeup of the group. Yeah. Uh, How do you get there? And just kind of what's your background in music? And have the 30s and 40s and 20s always been kind of your focus? Or have you listened to other kinds of, of music? Or, you know, how did that work? Sure. Well, I, I was a classical musician. I, I got my undergrad at Florida State in music composition, classical. And I did my master's at the Cleveland Institute of Music in classical composition. And I was sort of on this path to be a, I was a cellist and and composer, and I was just sort of on this path to be a classical composer. And I just got sort of burnt out. And at the same time, you know, I had had started swing dancing when I was in college. This was in the late 90s when there was the big fad. And through that, even though the music, of course, at that time, you know, largely was this sort of combination of, of swing and lounge and punk and ska and everything, but there's this... When it fell out of fashion, this sort of group of us who were into it so all around the, the world got into the older stuff. We started digging backward, and first we kind of dug backward through the 50s because we said, oh, well, this recording quality is like that. And then we really kind of started connecting with the music that kind of made made the Lindy Hop and, and the Balboa and those, these other vintage dances as we got deeper down the rabbit hole, basically. And, and since then, you know, this very small group of people around the world, the, the scene has grown and it's huge. And I mean, you know, obviously Sweden, where you're at, has a huge Lindy Hop scene, one of the, one of the biggest probably in the world outside of the U.S. So the way that I got into the music through that was it was just sort of a little bit as a hobby at first, just to kind of take some stress off when I was doing my master's. But then what I realized was as far as playing live, there were sort of straight ahead bands that, that were playing and and there were Dixieland bands and stuff. But but it was such a rarity to hear anybody play really this 30s, 40s thing. And then especially with a big band, I mean, forget it. Nobody was nobody was doing it. So I just sort of fell into it and I said, you know, I, I could do that. And we, there's all these people that are my friends and that we, we, we love this music and nobody's really playing it for us and we want to dance to it live. And so I just started building and I, I started with um, like a five piece group and, and started working my way up. And after a couple of years, I put the big band together at first and it was an adventure. I didn't really know much about, you know, jazz arranging. Uh, I mean, I, I completely self-taught 
jazz musician, taught myself to play banjo and guitar and, and taught myself to arrange and transcribe and all of that. So that was just kind of my path. And that was, you know, at the, at the time after I finished my master's, I was leading a, my band out in Seattle and I was out there for about seven years and uh, I was on tour, got into a pretty bad car accident on tour and sort of decided that that was going to be the thing that was uh, there was time I had to move to New York and that was kind of the impetus to make the big move. So I've been out here about, um, I guess, four years now here in, in New York and uh, just continuing to build with the big band and small group dates and all of that stuff. Cool. So it sounds like the circle of musicians you're drawing on, you say some of them just play vintage music. I mean, it's not necessarily the, the kind of the like studio cats is a wrong term, but there's kind of a free flowing group of jazz musicians based in New York, who some of whom appear on each other's projects. This is like a different group almost of musicians. I mean, people that at least some of them are really committed to this particular approach. Is, is that right in terms of, because I just think one of the difficulties of leading a band is where do you find the personnel? Where do you find the musicians? Oh yeah, it's, there's definitely a scene in New York. I mean, there's, uh, you know, you can go out any night of the week in New York City and hear at five, six, seven, eight places, different places, you know, groups just doing some form of vintage jazz, whether it's 20s stuff or swing or gypsy jazz or, or whatever. There's, so there's, there's definitely a scene. And then uh, there are some guys who are in that scene who are also, you know, in the, in the more modern jazz scene as well, who, who, who do both and do both very well. Uh, and then there's some guys that are just really, really deep into the old stuff. And that is just what they do. It's their thing. Cool. I'm trying to think here whether there's any particular stories you want to tell about certain members of the band. Is it is it a kind of a flowing collective, in other words, that when you call a gig, you're not quite sure about every chair. You kind of have a core that you're relying on, and then you you fill out as best you can. I mean, how big is the band? What what size of, is a group now? Uh, the band is 17, so it's a, a 15 instrumentalist and, and two vocalists, male and female vocalist. And it is actually we actually have a regular band regular musicians and then you know of course you know there's a sub list for each chair and but uh yeah it's 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 a real it's a core of players that are regulars those are the guys that really are i mean they they spend the time they check out the charts they're i I can't say enough about how really thoughtful these guys are about the music you know it's really like everybody cares about it it's not just like i'm showing up for gig everybody's really into what we're doing and it it definitely comes across musically and in terms of the, the work ethic of, of the band. It's, it's rare to have an actual set group of big band musicians in this day and age, but uh, somehow have managed to pull it off. That, that is impressive, right? Yeah, it, it's amazing because, you you know, there are examples, but it, it is tough to keep a working ensemble of that size. Yeah. But, you know, at least you know, if you're playing atonal music or something, Bog Brookmeyer's later charts, it might be harder, but, you know, at least this is right. a little bit more accessible for people. Certainly. So what? where do you gig? What's a typical gig like? Uh, where could people come see you if they wanted to hear the band live? Well, right now, uh, this month we have a, a residency on Wednesdays in Brooklyn at the Montauk Club. It's going for two more Wednesdays here. 
and uh, it's sort of like a supper club vibe. Usually that, that club is, is closed to the public, but it's it's open to the public for, for these events. So, um, yeah, you know, folks can get tickets for it on my website. Uh, it's 15 bucks, and you come in and hang out and listen to the band for three sets and order a nice dinner, and, and it's, it's a very cool, classic, kind of old-school vibe. Uh, we get a lot of dancers. We set up the listening crowd in the front and then have a big dance floor in the back. So the listeners can kind of engage with the band and the dancers still have space to dance and they're not in each other's each other's way. We're also we're doing Midsummer Night Swing coming up, which is a big uh, festival here in New York that Lincoln Center does every year. They usually bring bands back every, you know, five, six years or something like that. So we, we haven't been there for a few years and now we're back at that this year. Big outdoor festival will be there June 30th. And then, you know, hopefully these Montauk dates are sort of a trial. So if they if they go well, if they sell well, then we'll probably be there regularly in the fall. Other than that, uh, private events, one-off dates, uh, stuff like that. And really trying to build this band more into the, the concert circuit and kind of get us out there uh, into that kind of soft seat theater concert kind of thing. Uh, and hopefully, you know, this, this new album, this is the first album from this band, will kind of help launch us into that uh, direction as well. And so, uh, listeners, I mean, we're, we're going to go live here. We're recording here in May, but we'll be going live late June. Or best, you know, look up your look at your Facebook page. Yeah. Uh, you're you're going to be announcing gigs there. It's I'm assuming most of it is kind of New York area. For for the moment, but we do get out, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and and we're available. If you're listening and you would like to fly my big band to your town, please, <laughs> you know, give me a call and we'll make it happen. Uh, no, I mean, you know, we took the band down to Florida for a soft seat thing um, last year, and we we get out on the road a little bit. But it's 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 obviously it's easiest within driving distance. But if somebody's got the money for to do the flights, you know, if it's a big festival or something like that, or if you own the Dallas Cowboys or something, you can afford to fly <laughs> us to Dallas. By all means, we're available. You have to let one of the cheerleaders be a vocalist. It's just a devil's bargain. You don't uh, want to do it, but yeah. Well, that might not be so bad. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit, I guess, about your vocalist. You, know, you said there are two? or So when I'm listening to the various uh, performances on the CD, it, it's, it's two vocalists? Well, I also sing a couple, but I mean, we have two dedicated okay. vocalists uh, on, oh, okay. on the record. One is Dandy Wellington, and Dandy is... Uh, Pretty well known here in, in New York. Uh, he's he's been here. Uh, he's well, he's lived here all his life, and he's been on the scene. I guess maybe oh, eight or ten years or something like that. He's about my age, and just a, a really fantastic singer. Uh, does you know the the Fats Wallery kind of vibe, the Cab Calloway kind of vibe stuff really really well. There's a man on every tongue, Grandpa, Grandma, and the young. What's the fuss is all about? Just trying to find out who's your hootie, who's your hootie. Someone please lend me a hand. Solve this misery if you can. Is he mice or is he man? Who's your hootie? Who's your hootie? Who's your hootie? One dark night round half past three. Saw an owl up in a tree. He looked down and he yelled at me. And uh, is also, you know, quite known in the fashion scene here. He's always very, very fashionably dressed in typically vintage, vintage clothes. So uh, very, very well put together fellow and uh, great singer. And then Hannah Gill, who is our female singer, is kind of an up and comer. Uh, she's 20 years old. I think she's about to be 21 uh, next month. 
and she just has this fantastic voice and i said boy that that's a voice that's that's the kind of sound we need for this music and so i started working with her when she was i guess about 19 and you know just been developing her sound on this stuff and she's also you know she has her own projects that she does uh she's been out on the road a lot with the postmodern jukebox they hired her to do a bunch of stuff and yeah so but uh yeah she's really sounds great on this stuff. I, I think a lot of uh, singers, particularly when they try to do this older stuff, they just over-sing. They, they, they try to sing like modern singers where they want to reinvent the melody or they want to take all these liberties. And it's just like, actually, you got to just sing the song and you got it's more about delivering the song than it is about trying to be like an instrumentalist with your voice. It's You got to just really sell the audience on that song and deliver it in a, in a way that's compelling. Gather around me, I've got a story to tell If you're lonesome and downhearted Waiting to hear wedding bells Don't go wasting precious time Searching everywhere to find Someone to play Romeo Just persist and get on with the show Because a woman needs a man Just like a fish needs a bicycle Heed my advice and you'll find yourself feeling as happy as a clam Take a look at me So, yeah, I think it's there's sometimes an advantage to working with somebody young because they're not stuck in a way of thinking about some stuff that they learn from teachers in school or, or whatever. You go, yeah, there's there's that way to do it and there's this way to do it and they're both valid ways to do it. But for this style, this is the thing, you know? Right, yeah. Uh, both of them are, I, there's a sense of fun and mischief, but they are not trying to do Betty Carter in the middle of a 1930s arrangement, right? They are, right. You know, and really singers of that era, the good ones, are conveying what they're trying to do with nuance, with the feeling they're bringing to the song, not necessarily with the harmonic alterations. or Exactly, yeah. And there's, there's always little, uh, not so much improvisations, but I guess little uh, little alterations of, 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 of notes and things here and there. But, you know, I mean, you know, you look at Ella from that period and she's fantastic. She's not she's not later Ella where she's rewriting the, the melody, um, which is great, too. You know, I mean, I, obviously great music, but she's still fantastic and she's delivering it in that style that made sense. Uh, you know, Bing Crosby the same way he's de- delivering that song to you. So, yeah, I think it's just a different approach. Yeah, and uh, very enjoyable, uh, fun songs. And so uh, and you sing a couple. I, I, I have not looked at the the personnel closely enough. Tell me which ones on, on the on the recording do you do? Sure. Uh, thank you for the moments and I get ideas. The two two ballads I, I do on the record. When we are dancing and you're dangerously near me, I get ideas. Oh, I get ideas. I want to hold you so much closer than I dare to. I want to scold you cause I care more than I care to. And when you touch me and there's fire in every finger. And listeners to the podcast will remember really about a month ago, maybe a month and a half at this point, we tend to mainly talk about more modern music, but we do go back and we talked a little bit about 
Louis Armstrong's Decca recordings of the, the second half of the 30s, yeah. uh, which are fairly amazing. Yeah, well, and, I mean, what didn't he do that was amazing, you know? <laughs> it's true. Uh, and this was uh, 135, and then 136, we talked about some of his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And Mike was kind of running that one. And I will admit, love the playing of Bunny Bear again. Yeah. But some of the guys he was backing <laughs> made me want to kill myself. Yeah. So there, it's a very different especially some of that 30s music, especially white 30s, quote-unquote jazz or, or light singing, it's a very different emotional world. It's a different presentation of masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a... It, and this happened... I mean, you know, I grew up in the 80s, for God's sake, so I know all about the stray cat strut. Yes. But also the way Robert Smith is performing masculinity in The Cure or the way Rick Ocasek was doing it in the car. You know, every every era has its kind of avatars of... of playing with this idea and the 30s there's a couple different versions uh, my favorite being louis mm-hmm. but uh there are some others so i guess maybe as you were writing these songs because you write a lot of you know you, you must have written more than a dozen originals for this project mm-hmm. how do you think your way into not only just kind of the musical world the kind of harmonic rules that they probably follow at that time but also kind of the the outlook right i mean it is it's it's people dealing often with the depression if you're thinking about 30s music but they're typically not it's not like nick cave murder ballads it's trying to produce music that helps you get through it rather than dwell dwell on it so maybe talk a little bit about your inspirations there and maybe a couple of the favorite songs you wrote and how those came about as far as writing i think in terms of writing in the style that just comes pretty naturally to me because whatever you put in your ears is what comes out in 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 any genre right and that's generally what's in my ears all the time so it's 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 fairly natural for me but i think you know in terms of you know content and subject matter and things like that my goal is always to express something that makes sense for me that is that that is coming from a real place in me but just just the same way as you know what i what i try to get out of the sound of the band and the instrumentalist it's it's through this filter of the era so if you look at like a song on the record like a woman needs a man there you go. It's a very progressive, modern song, but but I wanted to find a way to deliver that that could also be quintessentially 1930s. That wouldn't sound out of place with a vocalist in the uh, in 1938 singing that, and maybe it would be a little provocative then, but not out of the question, not out of step, not out of time. So it's a matter of, you know, finding ways of doing that when you're writing, finding finding things that connect in both places that sound quintessentially of the era, but are also of you and, and of your, your own time. And, and I don't know, it's very sort of uh, kind of Billy Pilgrim. It's very Vonnegut-y. I mean, just kind of stepping <laughs> out, of, out of time and jumping from, from time to time. Right, you're using metaphor in a way that is not necessary now not that no singers use it mm-hmm. but you can be extremely direct and if you want vulgar about what you're trying to say yeah. uh whereas in the 30s you know you're not going to drop an f-bomb to kind of make your point no maybe no, this will be the first really podcast in a while i don't drop one that'd be great <laughs> get on a new road to cleanliness here i won't have to put the adult warning good times um, still don't worry <laughs> there you go i haven't opened the beer yet but it's coming and I noticed that that particular track, because, you know, the phrase, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, for those of us of a certain age, we're reminded first of Bono, and then of the 70s, I can't remember whether it was Erica Young that came up with that. Yeah, it's it's both, you can kind of imagine someone from the 30s singing it, that particular phrase has got kind of a cultural history all of its own. Mm-hmm. Though I will say your singer does this great 
you know, it's not quite Lee Wiley, who's one of my favorites from the mm-hmm. era. Mike is, is not sold on her, but I'm, I'm kind of a Lee Wiley fan. Mm-hmm. But People either seem to love Lee Wiley or, or hate her. I don't know. <laughs> well, it, it, right. And I, I don't know where you stand on the subject. And, you know, feel free to take whatever position you like. It, it, she is very stylized. Yeah. right? And so do you buy it or do you feel like she's doing the same thing again and again? And I don't believe a word of it. It's that's tough. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you sing her with a lot of manner. You know, you kind of. Mm-hmm. But but I feel like your singers got that kind of. I don't know, melancholy is quite the right word, but it's there's certainly she's not. There's a kind of restraint to what she's doing. There's a irony sometimes underneath it, a humor. Yeah. But again, it's that very cool, tamped down, implied position, mm-hmm. not covering a Pink song or something. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I probably she, shouldn't make that reference because I don't know any Pink songs. But but you know, I, I, I don't I, either. I, so. Right. But, but you get that sense, right? It's a different position. Just as I absolutely, you know, you mentioned. Cab Calloway influences. I mean, a couple of those uh, songs that were done in that style, I was very much like, oh, yeah, these are kind of fun tunes. Some of them are kind of minor key. And they also reminded me the one I there's one about, you know, we've got to kill so and so. And there's that weird strain of death songs that Louis Armstrong sings. You know, I've seen dead body in the woods or I'm going to I'm going to be glad when you're dead. You know, it's just kind of a it's a genre you don't hear that often anymore. It's what a strange topic to write songs about, especially in a rather innocuous era. But yet there's this whole subset of them. Yeah, um, sure Any is. particular anecdotes about inspiration on one or two of these or just ones you'd like to draw notice to or talk about in more depth in terms of your originals? Uh, well, you know, I think I think uh, the one that I had mentioned, uh, A Woman Needs a Man, I think is, is a pretty solid song there. I, I'm really proud of Just Like a Broken Record. I love puns. I just, I mean, in my life, I, I make a lot of terrible, terrible puns. We did, uh, on my last record, I did this whole ambiguous love song where you couldn't tell if any of the the lines were positive or negative, just depending on how you took them. And it was maybe a little over the top, but it's, I mean, it's fun. I don't know. But on, on that one, I feel like I kind of really, I, I like that tune because I feel like it's, uh, it, you know, it. there are more subtle and less subtle little puns in it, but, the, but they're puns that aren't sold in a funny way. So there's this sort of like, I mean, it's a, it's a sad song. It's a breaking up song. It's a, breaking up even though I still care about you song but it's also like a uh, uh I mean there's there's it's just this this I mean a pun right. basis underneath it that sort of makes it a little lighter and I don't know I'm 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 pretty proud of that one You swore it was only a kiss that you didn't do it on purpose but just like a broken Record. Your little story's only scratching the surface. The needle drops round and round we go. The melody makes me high, though the fidelity is low. But you pressed your luck, darling, running amok. And I will say that one stuck with me. Uh, that that was you. the one that I, I noticed the most and also ran through my head the most. Not like a broken record, but you know, it, it, there is a there's a hook to it. I mean, it kind of acts out the the conceit, and I almost call it. I mean, it's it's, it's much just an idea, um, a metaphor, and an analog, maybe literally, of of the romance going wrong, right? Where you play with this image of the record and you just keep pulling images out of that. So yeah, that that's a neat piece of writing. I mean, that was one that certainly struck me too. You know, you mentioned that you do video stuff, so I guess it's, it's a part of a larger question, which is just kind of 
as a band leader, you know, how do you spend your time keeping this beast alive? Because it is, and I think it sounds to me like you've got a more viable economic model and that you're trying to appeal to both dancers and listeners. You've got a vibrant scene there, people that are kind of invested in this kind of music. Mm-hmm. But leading a big band after 1940X is, is legendarily difficult for anybody whose name isn't Duke Ellington. Well, even Duke lost money. Duke was losing right, money well, on all his tours. He was His royalties were paying for the tours. Exactly. I, yeah, right. He had to, it helped to be a great songwriter and to be willing to reinvest that in a sense so he could keep listening to his own compositions. Yeah. It's a good point. Yes. He, he was not making money really leading the band per se. Right. But he was able to anyway, uh, which is a, was a gift. So obviously you have to kind of put the charts together. Are, are you doing the arranging as yeah. well as some of the composing? Wow. Yeah, I do everything. So whether it's uh, whether I'm arranging or, you know, writing the songs uh, and all the transcribing of stuff. I mean, I do get, you know, charts from other places, but I still put them through the mill and, and basically retranscribe them and just use them as, use it as a template because so much of the stuff out there, charts you get are just wrong. I mean, they're just not right. And it's, and it's not even things like little subtle voicing differences that nobody can hear on an old record. I mean, there's like serious major... I, I remember I got this chart from somebody of a uh, wrapping it up, the Fletcher Henderson wrapping it up. And I said, hey, I... I think this must be the Benny Goodman wrapping it up. No, that's the Fletcher Henderson. It's right off the Henderson record. I'm like, there's 16 bars missing on this that are on the Henderson record that are not in the Goodman record. No, it's right off. It must be a different Henderson record. I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not. Like, And so, you know, but you get that all the time. And it's just, you know, stuff that's wrong, rhythms that are wrong, wrong notes, lack of articulations and dynamics. So, you know, I'll get stuff from other places sometimes and then I'll put it into the computer and then I'll do, I transcribe it to the computer. So then I'll just go through it and I'll, I'll, I'll go through the record and retranscribe with that as a template. A lot of stuff I'm transcribing from scratch, a lot of other stuff, writing my own arrangements of old tunes and then, you know, writing new compositions and stuff for the band. So yeah, it's, it's a hell of a lot of work, but I, I think it pays off because having all of those details accounted for before the music ever hits the stands is a lot of bands would have to take all of those things and work them out in a rehearsal or just slop through them if they don't have a rehearsal. And so I'm, I'm essentially preloading all of that work into the charts themselves. So even the sub is going to play a lot more stuff right and the, the regulars are going to get stuff much faster if it's well-marked and, and well-transcribed. Okay, so you're, in a sense, what you're saying, I think, is that you're to make that idiom authentic, you really have to put in the research and the detail. So the charts are helping the musicians create it rather than just kind of gesturing vaguely towards what might result in something that sounds more or less authentic, right? Right. So you're really taking the time to kind of strip down and rebuild arrangements that is sound like a game of telephone by the time it gets to the paper. <laughs> right. Details have been lost or misremembered. I mean, it's it's that, but it's also just, just you know, you got to have the right notes. I mean, that's just the beginning, you know, and there's so many, so many poor transcriptions out there. Like David Berger's are very good. Uh, who he does all the essentially Ellington stuff and, you know, a lot of Lincoln Center stuff. And, you know, there's, there's one or two other good transcribers out there, but... And then there's just so much slop and you know i mean obviously all the old stocks are uh, pale shadows of the actual arrangements and so uh you know i know a lot of bands that play stocks and i'm just like man but the but the real thing is out there why would you want to play that stock version of it so yeah it's 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 a lot <laughs> sounds like it and so but along with that 
It sounds like you also do some video work as well. Is that to promote the band or just other interests or? Oh, you know, I don't. I'm not. I wouldn't call myself any kind of serious video person. But I just had to. When you when you leave the band, you kind of have to learn how to do a lot of different crap at a, at least a basic level. Whether it's like you know, think about you know, if you play the saxophone, you have to understand how to play the saxophone, right? If you lead a band, you got to play your instrument, understand the personalities of the band, understand the booking side of things, understand the finances side of things, understand the logistical side of everything, the promotional side, which often include you know, social media, video marketing, you know, the uh, networking, all 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 of that stuff is like uh, you know, it's it's a million other things that you have to think about in addition to the music. So you just have to learn, you know, I mean, I, I can do some basic video editing and uh, nothing fancy like a real editor can do. But when I need a tops and tails cut off of a, a rehearsal video or whatever, you know, I can I can go in and do it. And, and it is the same thing with, you know, learning Pro Tools for this record because I mixed this record. Oh, okay. so I just had to learn Pro Tools because I, I often, you know, I sit there in these recording studios and say to an engineer, no, that thing. Don't you hear that? No, no. Go back. See that little peak right there? Okay, right there. You know, put start start the uh, you know the f- fading in the soloist mic there or whatever. And it's just like, man, I could have just done that like in a second if I knew how to work the tools. So I finally just just decided it was time to just learn how to do it myself and probably save myself six or seven grand on this record doing it. Right. So you're not having to pay for a, another engineer to to do it you're yeah. just doing it yourself yeah and you're not having to tell the engineer what it is you want done <laughs> right and then i you know what i did was I, I still sent it out to once i got it all done uh, i a friend who's an engineer and i paid him to just kind of go through it and put a second set of ears on it and catch stuff that i maybe didn't catch because i was so deep into the project but like getting all the fundamental stuff done that just you know would have been a waste of time sitting in a studio doing it with an engineer's cool no that makes sense yeah, yeah. you want it it's that is a dark art, you know, mis- mastering a an album, yeah. uh, mixing an album, and I think especially, I'm assuming the challenge is higher when you've got so many musicians, right? It's just tougher to get a big band down than it would be, I am assuming, a small group. At least that's I found more problematic recordings of big bands where you just can't hear everything, you yeah. know, balance is off, muddiness, whatever it would be, just because again, there's just more going on that you're trying to get. Yeah, you got to put those mics in just the right place and. I don't know I, I get be- a little better every recording we do, and every one we do, I go, oh, if I would have just moved this mic, you know, two inches this way. But you know, that's part of the process of 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 getting better and better. So you know, the next record will be a little better than this record, and they just they keep improving, you know. Cool. You are a detail-oriented man. I can tell. <laughs> I, I I surely am. <laughs> you know, as a band leader. It sounds like you're very much controlling what's going on, which is not a bad thing, especially in this genre. But it's just, you know, that's attention in jazz in general. And one reason a lot of musicians want out of the big bands, right, is that it, it's that difference between a very, as you say, every performance is about a song mm-hmm. as opposed to expressing myself or my inner torment. And I like both. You know, I mean, there, yeah. you know, there's places for both. Absolutely. But I think I think the the, the former has been lost in a lot of ways because there's there's become this sort of prevalent idea that like real jazz isn't though especially like you know there's this prevalent idea that real jazz isn't that older jazz or real jazz is you know i mean the, the whole even within the older jazz community like well real jazz is is dixieland like eddie condon that's you know mm, they, they kind group. of preach okay. this like 
idea that if anything was written out, it wasn't real jazz. And it's like, well, what a bunch of nonsense that is. Like, that's just because you didn't read music. So you started a quest to convince people that the only real jazz was from people not reading music. Like, you know, what, what, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that specifically about Eddie Condon, but I'm, I'm sure that's a vibe of a lot of the people that subscribe to that, that philosophy. And as a result, we've lost a lot of this kind of uh you know old school big band vibe and a lot of this really uh beautiful music from that time yeah well there's always a canon being constructed of any music and yeah it's it's always kind of whoever's working together to create it they they tend they pick favorites and and other things tend to be relatively neglected yeah and i'd say that yeah a lot of the artists you're looking at you know i think ellington is fairly documented he's fairly canonical uh people seem not to have forgotten his stuff but I feel like the minute you get away from him, especially if you're not, you know, the, the, the one of the songs that surprised me the most, and you can talk about this, was String of Pearls, because sure. that was the one that to me was like, this seems kind of on the nose as a kid back in the 70s, you know, going on a Boy Scout trip with a cassette deck in the station wagon. Yeah. You know, the guy's favorite big band tunes would have that tune. Yeah. Whereas most of these, you know, they're not in the canonical one disc or two disc big band favorites. And they aren't necessarily in that exhaustive 400-volume study of Ellington right. and everything he ever did. And to a lesser extent, Count Basie. But, you know, there are only so many bands that have gotten that kind of canonization, exhaustive study. You know, I, I got to admit, when's the last time I listened to a Jimmy Lunesford recording? It's been a long time. And, I, yeah. and I'm, not a, I'm not a guy that listens at, like certain music a lot from the 30s. But yeah. I tend to listen to stereo era music for the most part. Well, you know, what's so interesting about that, the, the, that Lunsford stuff is that they really, like, people look back and they go, Ellington. But at the time, like, the Lunsford band was right there with the Ellington band. And in fact, like, one of the disadvantages that the Lunsford band had was that they were so popular. They, like, playing black theaters and black dance halls, and like, they were booked 364 days a year. Like, every night those guys were playing, they were on the road all the time. And as a result, they didn't have the opportunities to be heard as widely by white audiences that some mm-hmm. of the bands that stayed in New York and were working on radio did because people then heard them on radio. The Lunsford band, though, was playing to 10,000 people at a barn dance in Arkansas. And, and you know, they were huge. They were hugely popular, particularly in the black community. And, and of course, amongst like hipper white people that knew about them. But... um their musicianship and level of showmanship definitely rivaled the Ellington bands at, at that time. And I, in fact, I, I think, you know, particularly in, in the 30s, the Lunsford band was a lot more put together. I mean, the Ellington had some, had some great stuff and really great compositions and stuff. But the sort of, you know, what I've heard about the band at that time is like, boy, when they were on, they were on. But boy, when they were off, it was just like, because Duke let just kind of everybody go where they went, and and right, yes. <laughs> whereas Lunsford like was about like creating a sound for the band, and and I mean, and he had the, he had many incredible musicians in that group. You know, I mean, Cy Oliver was in that band. Willie Willie Smith, who was every, it was either him or Johnny Hodges was everybody's favorite alto player, and people went back and forth about who was their favorite, just like with you know Benny and Artie on clarinets and. Joe Thomas was, I, I wish more tenor players would listen to Joe Thomas. Like, man, you want to hear a cat blow a tenor sax, listen to Joe Thomas, you know, from, from the 30s and the early 40s, because what a monster that guy was, you know? And then Trummy was in that band, and, uh, you know, so it was, anyway, it was a hell of a good band. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, I don't know his work as well. I One thing that's always struck me about Ellington was his extreme 
focus on his recorded legacy and his ability in the studio to get a good sound out of the group on wax. Yeah. Uh, that seemed, you know, and, and certain things fascinating with bassist and you could hear the bassist in his band often. Mm-hmm. So that may be part of the problem. Whereas, you know, now as we look back and the decades pile on, mm-hmm. so much of what we know about is, is the recorded legacy. I mean, obviously we can't hear these groups live. And so yeah. whether that's kind of, tip the balance a bit. I, I have not gotten yeah. deep into Lunsford's discography. I haven't, you know, explored it. Well, Jimmy died in 47 too. So he didn't get through that Norman Grant's era of, of people going, Hey, we should put these guys on concert stages. So he didn't, he didn't ever have that right. because he was, uh, I think the, the official autopsy was that he died of a heart attack, but probably he was, uh, poisoned to death by people that didn't like black people in Seaside, Oregon, basically. Oh Lord. Yeah. Okay. He, all, he, he had a heart condition and the, um, the uh, you know it was a, it was a common thing for places not to want to serve black musicians, black people. You know when they were out on the road in small places then, and a, a thing that often happened was if black musicians, you know black black people would stand their ground, they would often like put some kind of something to give them the runs, you know, give them stomach problems basically, like in in their food. Well, whatever they put in the food that night that messed with the Lunsford band, it ended up compounding with Jimmy's heart condition and he died. Because all the rest of the guys in the band got sick too, but Jimmy died because he had had this this right. uh, hypertension right. issue, or you know, you die in '47 just before that whole like, hey, let's put the big bands on concert stages, let's let's you know have festivals like Newport where we're, where we're showcasing these these musicians. And I mean, man, that Lunsford band was hip. I mean, you know, even in coming into the bebop stuff, you know, Tad Dameron was writing Lunsford charts in the early 40s and doing weird stuff like putting the Barry Sacks on top as the lead line. And so I think they definitely would have made that leap had Lunsford been around for a few more years to when, hell, I mean, Basie broke up his outfit in 48 and it wasn't until the 50s that it really kind of had that resurgence. Right, yeah, and the, you know we get magnetic recording tape, and we get LPs, and and there's there's certainly a flurry of projects of big band leaders. It's like now this is a hi-fi kind of yeah. thing where they they bring them back, and right, because there is I I I felt I mean as I struggled with Charlie Parker as a kid, you know there is that kind of '78 barrier where he is he was compounded by playing on small labels, but yeah, you know the the sound is just it, it is more off-putting to me till you hit you know early '50s. Mm-hmm. And then if you're in a good studio, it, to me, it sounds as good as anything since then. It might sound different. Mm-hmm. In some ways, we haven't bettered early recordings in that, in the LP era. But mm-hmm. yeah, some of the 78 stuff, especially on independent labels, you're like, it's kind of through a fog. And it, it takes a while to kind of unhear that and just get to the music. At least it did for me as a kid. Before we start talking about some of the songs you picked out, I just wondered, as a really mediocre interviewer, I probably <laughs> forgot some really obvious things you wanted to talk about. So what happened, I asked you, that I should have asked you about Ain't It Grand, your new uh, double CD, or leading the band, or just anything else you'd like to say about that project before we talk a little bit about uh, some of your roots and the music you wanted to discuss? Sure. Well, uh, I, I think one thing you know that's, that's interesting that I'm doing right now is this Patreon project. 
it's it's essentially a jazz education project where I'm doing a video every month, you know, 15, 20 minute video, something like that, talking about a different topic, whether it's, uh, you know, I did I did one that was all about the Lunsford 2 beat and how bands get that sound. I did uh, one this month, sort of more pointed at dancers, but I think also that non-dancers could then learn something about dancers' approach to, to the music, about choosing music for choreography with live music and, and things you have to think about. I did another one that was just all about like how the process of you know making this making a record and how we mic things and all of that stuff and yeah just you know historical topics jazz appreciate topics things about subtle details of the music so the idea behind it is that I'm doing these and people subscribe for you know two bucks a month or, or more if they want to and can you know if you subscribe for more you also get to watch videos of the band's rehearsal or sometimes live stream when we can get it to work um, <laughs> But uh, but the idea is that all the money for that goes toward funding the big band's rehearsal fund, because you know what you brought up before is well how the heck do you make a big band work in this day and age? And the answer is basically you got to get creative. So you know just like the kind of Kickstarter model for for funding a CD, which is how we funded this album, can be very powerful. Honestly, like selling music, I don't know. In 15 years, are we still going to be able to sell any CDs? I I don't know. You know, I mean, everything is going the way of Spotify, and I I hope we still will. But man, all the 20-somethings I know don't pay for music. So what it really comes back to is this sort of patronage model. But it's got to be like this this micro patronage model where you go, yeah, I'll give this band two bucks a month, and I'll get some cool content, and I'll be supporting this thing that they're doing, or I'll give them 10 bucks a month, or whatever I I can to keep them creating this thing that I like. So that's kind of what we're doing with the Patreon. All the money from that goes toward rehearsals. And, you know, the goal is to kind of build that up to where uh, we can essentially afford to have a big band rehearsal every week. Because when we do that, man, oh my God, we'll be unstoppable. It'll be unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Right. It, it's that investment of time and, and, you know, money in people's schedules that yeah. can be, I mean, <laughs> Listen to some of the Gil Evans projects where, you know, amazing, amazing writing. And yet clearly there just wasn't time to rehearse the bands on those charts that he was finishing as probably a little later than he should have. And, you know, just didn't have time to kind of get people drilled in those really difficult charts. Yeah. It can really pay off musically if if you can do that. But I imagine it would be tough to get all those people in a room for a non-paying gig, right? You know, right. really you've Well, that's why you got you to do paid rehearsals. And I mean, the rehearsal should be paid. I mean, that's how it should work. Sure. You know, it doesn't have to pay an arm and a leg. I mean, the guys want to do it, but yeah, they should be compensated for their time. I mean, they got to just slept there with all their horns and everything and but uh yeah, you know, so we're we're trying to use this patronage model. People go, "Hey, you know what? I like this guy's video content. I'm going to learn some cool stuff and I'm supporting keeping this this kind of music this kind of big band music that's very difficult to make both you know musically and financially i'm i'm helping support keeping that tradition keeping that existing in the world basically yeah you know we have we have some really good patrons on there and we hope to continue growing it cool yeah i i I would be interested in seeing those videos i I don't think i can benefit from the dancing one i have tried i am just (laughs) spectacularly uncoordinated and i i do have been going to a class here in sweden but that 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 scene is not in the swedish gems which seem to adhere to the great european musical tradition of nothing but edm at all time ah well you got to find that you got to find the scene man because there's a huge lindy hop scene in stockholm the, I mean, I'm way south. That may be it. Yeah, I'm at this university town where we were going by the other day, and uh-huh. 60 kids in uniforms were simultaneously dancing to an EDM song outside. It was amazing. It was like robots had taken over the campus, but 
I guarantee you there's a swing dance club at, at that university. I guarantee you. I, I, I'm it's sure everywhere now, you know? I'm not not really integrated into it, but, but yeah, yeah uh, there's there's 40,000 kids here, so I oh, think yeah. some of them must be swing dancers just by sheer statistical probability. Well, Sweden has, has this interesting thing because basically in the 80s when the kind of resurgence of swing dancing started, there was a, a group in Sweden who were really into... They just discovered these the films of these old Lindy Hoppers and stuff like that and started learning it and created a dance team. And it was all essentially choreographed at the beginning. Like they didn't know how the, the improvisatory nature of the dance oh, really okay. worked. But then they and uh, there, uh, there was a couple of, uh, from, from the UK and a couple couples in the US. Uh, so people from all, all around the world started finding these old dancers and getting them out of the woodwork. Frankie Manning, who was the the sort of the king of the Lindy Hoppers at the Savoy, was working at a, a post office here in New York, you know. And so, particularly in Sweden, that because those folks were there involved so early on, I mean, there's a huge dance camp that happens every every summer in in Sweden, where you know thousands of people go and teachers from all over the world go, and they they all convene in harangue and just have this like six week long dance camp every summer. So wow, yeah. I'll just I'll miss that. What a shame. <laughs> they have an interesting relationship to jazz here. We've been many times. We were very close to the the southern tip, mm-hmm. and a little port city called Malmer. Yeah, has a big band that is just a recreation of the Thad Jones Mel Lewis big band. I mean, yeah. they play the original charts. At one point, I think the guy was telling the whole history of the group. I heard Count Basie's name and Thad Jones and Mel Lewis. The rest was Swedish to me. Yeah. But I was pretty sure that must have been the narrative he was providing. It went on about yeah. five minutes. Yeah, so they're there doing that. You run into singers who are studying one or more of, of the eras of the music. It's a fascinating kind yeah. of parallel history going on. Yeah. But I was not aware of the swing dance scene, so that's that's huge. Neat to hear about. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. Well, are we are we ready to move on to the songs you picked out? All right, or is there let's anything do it. else? Yeah. Cool. So uh, a lot of times when we have guests on, we'll say, just tell us a couple of your favorite albums and we'll discuss those. But you're kind of from the pre-album era, at least back when albums were sets of 78s in a book, maybe that kind of album, but not, not as we think of as the LP. And so you say, well, I'd like to pick out some 78s by some favorite artists and just kind of talk about those a bit. So you gave us a selection here to listen to, Fletcher Henderson's Shanghai Shuffle. Yeah. And I listened to the wrong one and then you sent me the right yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, there's two, two recordings like less than a month apart. Fletcher, the deepest I've gotten into him is there was an old, probably four or five LP set that became a three CD set called A Study in Frustration. (laughs) Yeah. That assembled a number of what I assume were his most characteristic recordings, but the the version of Shanghai Shuffle they include is the one with the unfortunate oboe solo. Yeah, it's I love Don Redman, but I don't think that was his best moment, that oboe solo. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hip that they decided to put an oboe solo in there, but uh, you know, I, I'm not sure it was a successful experiment, which is probably why they remade the side a couple weeks later, you know? But what's so great about that, that November side is you really hear the beginning of swing. So Lewis came into this band in late 23, early 24, and basically... This was at a time where there was this, I mean, jazz was everywhere, but guys were hearing about like, oh, these jazz men from New Orleans, they've got this feel to it, to the way they play, this vibe. 
And so Fletcher had heard about Lewis and wanted to basically bring him into his band to not only play great, but also to like to, for it to rub off on, on all the other guys in the band. And Ellington actually did the same thing with, with Bechet and had Bechet in his band for about three months, except Bechet couldn't show up to anything on time. So <laughs> they had to part ways. But what's so great about this record is it's it's going on. It's fine. It's this, you know, it's very 20s, but it's very like, you know, light dance bandy. It's kind of square. And then all of a sudden, Lewis comes in with a solo. And it just the everybody changes, just the vibe of the whole record changes, and then it's changed from there to the end of the tune, and it's just like you could you can literally hear him inspiring these other musicians on this side that's recorded in wax for us to hear forever. And so to me, it's just like well, right there, that's where the swing era started. I think it's right there on that record because it's man, Lewis. <sighs> yeah, and we yeah, we talked about that that it, it in a weird way I feel. It was my nominal introduction of that music as a kid that somehow Louis Armstrong wasn't made a central part of the swing era story. Right. But if you listen to those decasides, you know, it's like, how can he not be yeah. in the top of musicians you discuss from that era? Oh, you know, my God. Well, the Hot thing. Five stuff, too. I mean, it's just like nobody was playing like that when he was i mean you listen to the other guys on the hot fives and they all sound good but like nobody is where lewis is like i mean he's just oh, yeah. swinging he's just swinging so hard well i think part of that is yeah that, that because for whatever cliched reason people tended to think of the swing era as an era of big bands and because louis was you know those are small group recordings and then his relationship with the big band on the deck of sides is a little bit different it's yeah. not it's a, it's a it's a player in a back background for yeah. the most part. I mean, there's yeah. exceptions, but it's not the great Louis Armstrong band. It's the great Louis Armstrong with a band. With the band, know? yeah, that's very true. But nonetheless, you know, you hear them, and it's like, is anybody swinging better than this? You know, in the yeah. era, and I I don't know who it would be. So yeah, that's a neat track. I should go back and listen more to Fletcher, and, and of course, we're talking about a recording from 1924. So this is yeah. you know, early uh, yeah, early so stuff. I, I certainly I think Coleman Hawkins uh, in never. Band, yeah the most flowing rhythm, but learned a lot rhythmically from oh, yeah. Louis at this time. I mean, you know, and he, he think of major jazz musicians that came out of that group. Yeah. So you also picked out Charlie Christian with Benny Goodman playing Stardust. Yeah, well, it's just a beautiful. I mean, how, you know, how can I not? I mean, a guitarist, how can I not pick out a, a a Charlie Christian side? And I just think that's just such a beautiful, um, beautiful solo. Not really improvised. Little bits of it, I think, are improvised, but generally a worked out solo. But just the the groove that that band has on that, and what what's super hip to me on on a lot of those uh, 
those Goodman small group sides too is the uh, the drumming. And it's, it's a couple of different drummers that they, I can't remember exactly who's on that one. I know Nick Fatul's on some of them. I think Davey Tuff is on some of them. There's a couple other cats. But um, yeah, man, like this, like doing press rolls with brushes on the on the hi-hat and stuff like that and, and on, in backgrounds. And all of that stuff is really like just gold in every one of those recordings. But just, I think just Charlie's sound on that stardust is just so gorgeous that's kind of what made me think of of that one i love to to play that with my small group yeah it, it is a it's a lovely recording and i will say as somebody that listens more to small group jazz of the 50s forward uh, though i do i i actually love a lot of small group jazz from the 30s i think it's kind of a magic time for just the feel of it mm-hmm. but i i find uh, the goodman small band sides to really be accessible and enjoyable for someone of my kind of limited grounding in the era uh you know i listen to this big band occasionally it's amazing i feel like it's kind of a proto rock band in certain ways you know the energy and the kind of thrust the near hysteria occasionally but those small group sessions they're just uh, a lot of magic sides and they I really surely enjoy are them. yeah yeah you also picked i think it's a little love a little kiss by eddie lang right yeah. very distinctive because at least the version i have which i hope is the right version is just really him playing a guitar solo yes yeah, solo correct? guitar piece yeah eddie is one of my heroes and i, I mean if, if you play the guitar and eddie's not one of your heroes i think you've missed out because he's really the father of all all the jazz guitar you know all the jazz guitarists eddie was not particularly a soloist i mean that wasn't the role of the guitar so much in jazz I mean, when he had a little solo break or something like that he plays really nice interesting stuff but his role as an accompanist was just unbelievable. And he died very young in 1933, a botched tonsillectomy. So, you know, who knows what we would have had from Eddie Lang if he had lived into the swing era. But, you know, his way of playing, I mean, it's just his way of accompanying, whether it's a singer or an instrumentalist, I mean, it's just, it's so unbelievable. And, and the technique involved is, I mean, it's really untouchable. Like, you just... It's very, very, very hard to do what Eddie did as an accompanist. It's it's bordering on impossible. Yeah, we're we're big fans of of the Joe Venuti Eddie Lang sides. Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I find those uh, some of the titles maybe kicking the cat is yeah, not appropriate. I just, <laughs> I, I just did a whole concert of that stuff with uh you know Andy Stein here. He used to do uh used to be on Prairie Home Companion was a violinist on Prairie Home and then um in Vince Giordano's band now and he and I just did um, a concert with Connell Fawkes from from Woody Allen's band the pianist in Woody's band and uh, Jay Ratman who's the lead alto player in my big band who was playing alto and clarinet and Barry on this but we just did a, a whole concert program in four or five places of all that Venuti Lang Blue Four stuff yeah, those are just delightful recordings. Uh, Mike and I talked about them back on episode 96, listeners, if you're interested, where we did kind of, we looked at Lonnie Johnson, Charlie Christian, Django Reinhardt, and Eddie. Yeah. And, you know, they're amazing guitarists, all of them, but uh, those Eddie, si- Eddie Lang sides with Joe Venuti are just loads of fun. Yeah. And again, the kind of group jazz, the small group jazz that I find 
fairly easy and accessible to get into, again, as somebody coming from the stereo era and, and going back, but but not as often probably as I should. So yeah, that was a neat one. I, I'm sure I'd heard it before, but I had not sat down and listened to it with any concentration for many, many years. And it was kind of cool to bring that out of the stack. Yeah. Uh, another one you picked was Gene Goldcat's band with Bix Beiderbeck. I, I assume Clementine from New Orleans. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Cle- Clementine from New Orleans. Yeah. Clementine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so what I love about this one, this is another one of those moments where like you hear swing happening, like you hear the swing era starting to happen. And this is also Eddie Lang, right? So on this side, you know, you got Bix is on there and Venuti and uh, Bill Rank on trombone. And uh, I mean, that was a hell of a band. But what's so interesting about that side is that there's both banjo and guitar on it. So Howdy Quicksell's on banjo and Eddie's on guitar. So for the first chorus... Howdy's playing banjo. Eddie's just laying out. He's not playing. And then you get the verse after that, and Eddie's got these little breaks in the verse, so he's not really playing time. And then Eddie starts playing time under the reed trio, and Howdy drops out, and the feel of the band just changes. And I say to people, they're like, you know, well, why did the why did the guitar take over for the banjo? And you know, what was the? And I'm like, listen to this side in that moment, and you will understand why the guitar took over for the banjo. <laughs> it's like I mean it's just the band just goes and it's just Eddie is just sending them just just by the way he's playing chords it's just like I don't know it, it just I get a knot in my stomach when I hear it because it's just like it just feels so good you know it's yeah it's a fantastic track yeah, you get the sense that I don't know the banjo feels a little bit more vertical rhythmically a mm-hmm. little more pounding in place and then that sense of a horizontal flow yeah. And of course, Biderbeck is just kind of floating up there and it's, it's so different from Armstrong and yet yeah. such a compelling conception. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously not as prolific or influential a musician by any stretch. It turns out it's better to smoke marijuana than to drink alcohol incessantly. Yeah. yeah. Trumpet players take note. Yeah. Grass is your friend. Booze is bad. Yeah. I was thinking of Bunny Bear again, Big Spiderback. I yeah. mean, how many trumpet players, and of course, Sport Clifford Brown, you also want to stay out of any moving vehicle if you possibly can. Well, that's not just for trumpet players, man. I'll tell you, yeah. Bessie Smith, No too. kidding. <laughs> You've learned that yourself. Yeah, I have. Not I quite learned it the hard as, way. As thoroughly. Les Paul, too, in fact. What's that? Les Sorry. Paul, too, in fact. Oh, okay. That, yeah, I, he I broke know. his arm in 47. He had to have it set in a l shape so he could continue to play the guitar the rest of his life wow <laughs> yeah that's why if you listen to the les paul stuff from before 47 i mean les was always amazing right but like technique wise the stuff that he did in his early career he couldn't still do later so that's why when he started getting into all the electronic stuff and doing all of that stuff but like you listen to the recordings of him from like 40 41 like with the warrings pennsylvanians and he's got the little trio holy shit man like, I mean, he was like everything that Django can do twice as fast. And I mean, just unbelievable. Yeah, there's somebody I've not sat down to listen to at all. Yeah. So I really should do some trawling there. For whatever reason, you know, not a name that necessarily gets put in the canonical jazz chronologies. 
maybe as much as he should be. You know, you hear about Charlie Christian for sure. Mm-hmm. You certainly hear about Django. You hear a little bit about Eddie Lang. I mean, as, as the progenitor, probably not as much as he deserves. Right. But Les Paul, maybe because he was associated with rock to some degree. I, yeah. I don't know, but he does not get the, the same look in. The same thing with George Barnes. They just kind of get overlooked, and I mean, Barnes was incredible, you know? And so you also dropped a couple versions of Four Dancers Only. Yeah. And so one, what, when does the first one date from? 34, I think, 35. Mid-30s. Yeah, And then yeah. there's a remake in the stereo era, is that right? Yeah, so after Jimmy died, you know, and the stereo thing kind of was happening in the 50s, they they tapped Cy Oliver because Cy's orchestra was Cy had an orchestra then in the fifties. You know he made some he made a nice record with Louis in nineteen fifty one, uh, which is where that I get ideas on our record is from. But anyway, so he did this set of reissues of of Lunsford things. You know Cy Oliver Orchestra plays Jimmy Lunsford. Of course Cy was you know the uh, one of the arrangers and trumpet players in the Lunsford band and very influential in creating that sound and the Lunsford two beat feel was really came from Cy. Like Jimmy Crawford hated the idea of playing two beat and Cy wrote it when Cy was writing in the arrangements and he's like, no, this is this is gonna be a thing. Just trust me, just do this two beat thing. And that's that's how we get this Lunsford two beat vibe. But yeah, I wanted to show these two recordings to just kind of illustrate even with some of the same personnel in the fifties that were playing the stuff in the thirties, you know, some a lot of the same guys on the record. Totally different just totally different feel, totally different way of playing. And I wanted to illustrate this because what I see a lot of today is like as vintage music starts, is starting to become more like the, the mainstream jazz world, I guess, is starting to take more note of it. But what I see a lot of is like, like I remember I was, I was booking, um, we're going to booking a tour in Florida. And I, I talked to this one college professor, head of a jazz department. And I said, well, you know, here we've got this band. We're going to be down there. It's like all these ace players from New York who specialize in vintage music. So we're sort of like what an early jazz ensemble is, or what an early music ensemble is in the classical world. We we are like that in the in the jazz world. And and the response that I got was like, well, we have a repertory jazz orchestra that plays, you know, this kind. We, we do a 30s program every now and then. So I don't think that's really... And it's just sort of like, you know, it's the difference of like when, a, you know, a symphony orchestra plays Bach versus when, you know, an early music ensemble plays Bach. Like, it's a very different approach. And so when I hear some of these big repertory groups do vintage stuff... I just sort of go, I, I think people don't, who are out there don't know like, hey, that's that's not the vibe of the way the music sounded at the time. And so I think kind of just comparing these two tracks of like, here's here's how, the, the 50s version is essentially how you're going to hear a repertory orchestra play something like this today versus how the band actually played it in the 30s, listening back to the original Lunsford record. Right. And you can kind of understand that the impulse where, again, so many listeners can be intimidated when you get to pre-LP recordings because they are there's just a lot of learnings to be learned there. You get down to matrix numbers or you're talking about two different, you know, cuts by the mm-hmm. same group of the same song a month or two apart. Yeah. Very different. Mhm. It, it's a little harder to assemble it. I mean, yeah. we all know what a love supreme is, right? Sure. 35 minutes, you can find it. It's on a disc. Yeah. Whereas now of course 
in a sense, we're kind of in a post-album environment. But this old guys know what what's meant by that. And then, speaking for myself and Mike anyway, but when you're looking for 78s, I mean, it's a little harder to track them down, to find them, to know what you're getting. I think if you're going to Spotify, it, which is context-free music for the most part, you know, yeah. it's just you put a name in and they start giving you things and it's reverse chronological order, but that's of the issue, not of the music. So yeah. you, you might get 2018, some small European label did a copyright-free reissue of music from 1952 right and then the next album is a 2017 release of one from 1957 and with uh, 78 stuff there's even less understanding of where to find it so i i guess it makes sense that some musicians would like turn to those 50s records and take that as kind of the authentic thing rather than the reproduction that's looking back at the big band era through you know a lens at that point so where would you advise younger listeners to kind of begin with this music, find some of the tracks you've been talking about here, where are some good places to turn? Because again, it's, it, you know, we don't have a stack of shell like anywhere. So what, where do we find this stuff? What would you advise? Sure. Well, well, one thing I will say about like the, the Spotify thing is it's, it's kind of interesting because things have kind of come full circle. Like things were essentially all about songs until the lp era and then things became about albums and now things are kind of they've kind of gone back to being just about songs like the the concept of an album has essentially it it holds a lot less power than it did in you know 1975 when you like you bought an album and you took it home and you sat there and listened to the whole thing so you know i just see it as like okay now we're back to this and then maybe we'll go back to the other thing in 50 years and who knows not essentially good or bad I think the lack of context that Spotify provides is certainly a problem. But I think a great place to start is to just to know a handful of artists from the era and dig from there. Um, okay. So, like, you can't go wrong with Fats Waller for small band stuff. And he died in 43, so anything you're going to hear from Fats Waller is going to be pre-war or, or, you know, the very beginning of the war. Whereas, like, when you look up, you know, Louis Armstrong, you're getting everything from the Hot Fives to, you know, What a Wonderful World, which it's very difficult to, like, sort out the context of what is from when if you're not, if you're new to it, right? So uh, people like Jimmy Lunsford, who died in 47, if you look for Jimmy Lunsford, you're going to essentially get war era or pre-war music. Glenn Miller is the kind of the same vibe. So I, I guess the, maybe the place to start is with the cats who died young. I mean, I hate to say that, but, you know, Charlie Christian, Bix Spiderbeck, Eddie Lang, you're not going to find recordings of them doing more modern styles of music you know like you are going to find with uh people like uh, uh lewis or, or yeah. yeah or basie yeah i mean that's one of the big problems with like new testament basie and old testament basie are different man and they are just the, it's a different feel and a different approach and i personally like i don't know I, I think i've just been beat over the head all my life with with new testament basie and i just can't even listen to it anymore it just doesn't do anything for me whereas the old stuff just lights a fire under me man it's those those arrangements that feel that vibe i feel like the 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 new testament stuff is a lot more like it's a little over arranged it's not about the rhythmic drive it's not dance music anymore and you're talking about you know recordings from like the 50s, 50s. forward yeah, as opposed to his original the, band from the 30s. Right. Yeah. Okay. The New Testament band is 52 and forward. He broke up the band in 48. So Old Testament is is 48 and back, back to 37 when they they were recorded on Decca. I think there's a couple live sides from 36, maybe Billy Holiday. Yeah, that Decca stuff, man. I mean, that's a great place to start. There's a three disc set of Basie on Decca. Oh my God, it's like that's I think the swingingest thing from the swing era 
It's from the Basie Band in 37. It's that Honeysuckle Rose recording. And it's just like, it's just, it's so perfect. And it's not complicated. It's simple, but it's just like amazing, you know? Right. That was the other one. I, I just skimmed over that and oh, yeah. just missed it going through the list. But yeah, that and that's kind of it's an interesting example because a lot of that recording sounds like a small group. Yeah. And you've got Basie, you know, playing this minimalist piano solo as he's known for with basically the trio, and then you get a Lester Young soloing, and then you do get I think some of the band, but it's yeah, yeah, it's kind of miraculous performance. Yeah. Yeah, you get a little Buck Clayton in at the end. I think it's Buck on that muted trumpet solo there at the end. But it's just like, it's this riff vibe. It's like clearly no arrangement. They clearly just worked out the arrangement. Beautiful chorus from Lester there. And and Basie, I mean, and that's still when Basie's playing stride. So it's this weird, you know, he's like, his left hand is striding, but his right hand is doing all this light twinkly stuff instead of like big, full Fats Wallery type things. He's, he's like, you can hear him kind of moving into that thing where he's just playing one note every now and then, you know, it's it's kind of hip. Cool. Well, if there's nothing else you'd like to talk about, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anything else that I've, I've kind of missed or glossed over that we want to touch on before I let you go? Well, uh, I think we, we told people where to check out the album. You can, you know, glennkreitzer.bandcamp.com and CD Baby. And yeah, check out the Patreon and uh, look look for old music, man. It's, it's out there. And don't be discouraged, I would say, by the fact that 90% of it is, is like people doing it today, probably 90% of it is crap because that's the case with anything, right? Like 90% of pop music is crap, 90% of anything is crap. So look for the good stuff. And old music has this this Shakey's Pizza reputation, you know, where it's sort of <laughs> like, you know, old guys in arm garters playing the banjo. And there are those of us who are doing it as as more serious art. So don't let the uh, don't let the 90% that is is crap turn you off to the to the hip stuff. Cool. And of course the CD is called Ain't It Grand. And we thank you so much for talking about that project, a little bit about your background, about some of the songs that influenced you and that you love to listen to. And I really appreciate you taking time out. So sorry Mike couldn't be here to talk with you as well, but uh, thanks just intervened and he couldn't do it. Uh, well, thank you for having me on. And that concludes episode 143 of the Jazz Bastard podcast. As always, you can download the podcast from www.jazzbaster.com. You can also get it from Apple Podcasts, from Stitcher, or you can stream it from Mixcloud. Every month we post a summary of the podcast on All About Jazz, and that's another place you can access the content. You can contact us at pat at jazzbaster.com or mike at jazzbaster.com. You can drop us a line on Facebook or if you prefer, send me a message on All About Jazz. Tune in next time as we talk about less than successful or just plain strange albums by major jazz artists. We'll be looking at works by Bill Evans, Duke Ellington, Freddie Hubbard, and Thelonious Monk. Mike should be back with us then, so look forward to that. Until next time, take care.